with gratitude to the ancestors, to this practice, to this container that we are all co-creating. There's a sense of dignity and respect in the container right now. There's a dignity in the practice when we do our best. We cultivate a dignity in the posture. We cultivate a dignity in the care for the grounds, for the food, for all the caretaking that we're doing, the caretaking of this place and the caretaking of each other. So today, I would like to say a little bit more and reinforce the practices that we're employing this week from the Satipatthana Sutra. The path of practice passed down from the Buddha. As we travel this living path right now together, I'd like to talk about how we all get tangled in the weeds along the way. How the weeds are none other than the path. And I'd like to introduce one of our ancestors from the women's lineage, Ling Zhao Pang, who came from a family of lay practitioners. So the practice of Sashin affords us a, an opportunity through the forms that have been passed down to practice and to enact this dignity and respect. These forms are passed down to us and through them we're invited to express respect, gratitude, and even love in each bow. Maybe our bows are perfunctory sometimes, or they're unconscious sometimes. Maybe they're even reluctant. Even if they are half-hearted, they are still the practice. And we are practicing to embody dignity, respect, and love through these repeated actions. In the 12 steps, there's a slogan, fake it till you make it. And there's as much wisdom in the 12 step slogans as there are in the Lojong slogans. Generally, this slogan, fake it till you make it, becomes a lot clearer when you want to stop doing something. In acknowledging an addiction, you're really required to look at the people, places, and things that you habitually turn to. 
to look at the triggers, the urges, the habits that set you up. And you begin to realize that the more you do a thing, the more you can do that thing. And that simple truth about how human beings operate can be used to cultivate a wholesome life. And it starts with recognition and awareness. So are we nothing but skin bags of habits and karma? Who are we? Who are we really? This is the question. Can you feel into this question itself? And what is this curiosity made of? There's not knowing. Not knowing if I'm doing it right. Not knowing what my life path will be. Not knowing what will happen in the next breath. Who are we? What are we really? And are we able to tolerate not knowing? Can you notice if there's a pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone in response to not knowing? Do you enjoy roller coasters? Do you enjoy moving to a new place, vacation to foreign countries, travel, starting a new job? Not everybody does. How do you typically handle these kinds of challenges? In our meditation practice, it's sometimes said that how you do anything is how you do everything. So in this way, so much can be revealed when we sit. We simplify our activity and look. Look deeply. In this case, it might be beneficial to look into your relationship to the experience of not knowing. So how are we doing that on this sashin? In the oral tradition of the Buddha, repetition was necessary to maintain the teachings until they could be written down. Repetition helps us remember. And these are embedded in the rituals that we participate in, this repetition. The word mindfulness is a translation of the Pali word sati, the Satipatthana Sutra, 
the four foundations of mindfulness. Then Asaro Bhikkhu says this about the word sati. What does it mean to be mindful of the breath? Something very simple, to keep the breath in mind. Keep remembering the breath each time you breathe in, each time you breathe out. The Buddha defined sati as the ability to remember. Repetition helps us remember. The Buddha says, and what is the faculty of sati? There is the case where a monk, a disciple of the noble ones is mindful, highly meticulous, remembering and able to call to mind even things that were done and said long ago. And here begins the Satipatthana formula. They remain focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. They remain focused on feelings in and of themselves, the mind in and of itself, mental qualities in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. We've been employing these mindfulness practices, awareness of the body, awareness of the breath, awareness of feeling tones, and awareness of mind states. Our direct experience can be a refuge. Surely all of us who are here, anybody who's had a small taste of practice, can know this for yourself. When the mind is caught up, entangled in the weeds of thought, this returning to the breath, returning to the simple truth of sensation, flowing and changing moment by moment, can help cultivate calm. <coughs> the body can only be in this moment. This breath can only be right here, right now. And in that recollection, that reconnection, we can rest, quiet the mind, like a glass with muddy water or like a snow globe our minds become settled, even a little. They become clear. <coughs> this is another aspect mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutra. It's a Pali word that is pronounced sampajanya, which is translated as clear comprehension or alertness. Thanissaro Bhikkhu also says, one quality that's always appropriate in establishing mindfulness is being watchful or alert. The Pali word for alertness, one quality that's always appropriate in establishing mindfulness is being watchful or alert. It's sampajanya, another term that's often misunderstood. It doesn't mean being choicelessly aware of the present or comprehending the present. Examples in the Pali Canon show that Sampanjanya means being aware of what you're doing in the movements of the body, the movements in the mind, 
being aware of what you're doing. After all, if you're going to gain insight into how you're causing suffering, your primary focus always has to be on what you're actually doing. This is why mindfulness and alertness should always be paired as you meditate. So not only can we be aware of the body, but even the snow globe when it's all shaken up, we can bring that same alertness and appreciate the simple truth of how things are. This light of awareness, this light of alertness, this inquiry into what is happening, this is the practice. This is the investigation. We can shine this light and see the workings of this being, which is not separate from anything else. It is in complete accord. So practicing with the body. There is awareness of the four postures. And this is something you can continue throughout our time, aware when the body is walking, aware when the body is lying down, aware when the body is standing, aware when the body is sitting. Just remembering. Walking and knowing you're walking. Lying down knowing that you're lying down. As we go through our days and evenings, taking refuge in this practice, an awareness of breathing, breathing in, she knows she is breathing in, breathing out, she knows she is breathing out. Breathing long, he knows he is breathing long. Breathing short, they know they are breathing short. There is also the practice of awareness of the four elements. Fire, air, earth, and water. Which may, we may also employ at some point in this week. But please return to these simple and yet profound practices as you move through the day and the evening. And continue the question, what is the source? In addition to the mindful, to mindfulness of the body, there's the practice of mindful, clear comprehension and alertness to feeling tones and mind states. Bhante Gunaratna, a teacher in the Theravadan tradition, speaks of the four foundations of mindfulness and says, we can say that the entire teaching of the Buddha is based on feelings. We can say that the entire teaching of the Buddha is based on feelings. Toward the end of his life, after 45 years of teaching, the Buddha said, bhikkhus, I have taught only two things. Suffering and the end of suffering. And 
We've been noticing feeling tones, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral. And Fuho introduced a simple way to inquire into their construction and workings, this triangle of awareness, the three points being sensation, feeling, and thought. And these all interact with one another, but it is sometimes that the feeling tone, that initial hit from whatever it is, whatever is happening, we might miss that. It's very subtle sometimes. One person demonstrated their practice of examining feeling tones in response to things. Uh, they noticed pleasant things, mm. unpleasant things, eh. Now, how would you demonstrate neutral, I wonder? It's subtler still. I'm not sure it has an expression other than maybe blankness. So often, that which hits as neutral is just ignored. Maybe we don't even register it. The feeling tones, positive, negative, neutral, do map on to the three poisons of greed, anger, and ignorance. So perhaps a neutral feeling tone is just going along, believing you have self. When you notice feeling tone, can you be aware of its cause? Can you be aware of the precursors, of its ingredients, of the components? Can you get curious? What is the source? So here's Bhante Gunaratna on meditating on the mindfulness of feelings. He's sometimes known as Bhante G. Meditating on mindfulness of feelings. When we meditate on mindfulness of feelings, we keep in mind that feeling arises dependent upon contact. As contact changes, the feelings also change. When we experience a pleasant feeling, we think this is a pleasant feeling. It has arisen depending on these factors. When these factors disappear, the pleasant feeling will also disappear. We do the same for an unpleasant feeling or a neutral feeling. We don't do anything to control our feelings or make them change. We only notice that our feelings are changing. Each feeling arises due to causes and conditions and then slips away. The mind can't hold on to what we are experiencing and naturally lets it go. What else can it do? Nothing. As we observe this process, we should not try to put our feelings into words. Labeling our sensations and emotions can actually distort them or disguise them as something else. Each person's feelings of pain or pleasure are totally personal. Feelings cannot really be conveyed in words exactly as they were experienced. We simply let the breath flow in and out. We stay fully awake and alert, paying total attention to each feeling as it arises, peaks, and passes away. <laughs> 
watching these feeling tones end. Now that's a practice. Staying with it until it ends. Not just noticing it and adding it to your list of failures in meditation for having it, but letting it arise, exist, and disappear. And then, where does it go? What is the source and where does it go? There's also the clear comprehension, the awareness of mind states, aware when they're present, aware when they're absent. And there's quite a list of those. They can be categorized, maybe anger and hatred, desire and craving, delusion, but also the non-desiring, the non-craving, the non-hatred, the equanimity that may actually be here. We can also cultivate wholesome mind states. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about appreciating our non-toothache. How profound is the gratitude when a toothache ends? And can we not just appreciate the non-toothache all the time? This is our experience. So watching these experiences until they end, what is the source? So whatever brings you here, and you must have a deep heart for practice to anyone who comes to a sashin. There's a deep question or deep suffering or the appeal of the cessation of suffering. That's kind of a draw. And a path to attain it even. I wanna go. We have this neat path of practice full of maps and lists. Oh, do we have lists? There's directions and letters and postcards from these exotic destinations of enlightenment. Postcards from the ancestors. I'm here in the pure land, having a great time. You're already here. Who wouldn't wanna go? So we set out with the map and the guides, our companions. And it doesn't take long before we notice that the wheels are not on their axle completely right. And the vehicle is totally wobbly. And we misunderstood the directions and we wander off in the weeds or into a ditch. And we think this is terrible. My practice is terrible or I am ill-suited for this or everyone else has got it and I don't or this is too difficult, or I am trying too hard, or I am slacking off.
the postcards are not the destination. We need to look at whatever standards we have developed for ourselves. We need to look at whatever standards we have for our practice. And those may be secret, even unbeknownst to ourselves, because this reactivity, this judging mind, when it's present with an energy, uh, it can, um, well, it indeed is, is another of the aspects of, of the path. It's inevitable. The path includes all of this off-roading, absolutely. We can look at it with curiosity. We can look at it with the energy, ardent, clear comprehension. With gentle curiosity, not the attitude of a suspicious detective, assuming the worst, cataloging our failures. So we need to be aware of whatever this yardstick is that we're measuring ourselves against or maybe hitting ourselves with. These are frozen or fixed. They're not real. And they might be really tight and small, all about my practice and my awakening and how am I doing and how do you think I'm doing. There may be some legitimate concerns or ways to readjust, just like when we go off track with the phone, you know, recalculating. There can be some recalculating, but when we're caught up in this, it's suffering and it's decidedly unpleasant. So can we assume that every one of these ancestors have been through this? Every one of these ancestors have experienced any and all of the difficulties that we have. They're just people. And everyone has their own unique set of experience and biology and psychology and gifts. How could it be otherwise? Wherever you are, how could it be otherwise? Can your inquiry have a less judging energy? Can you assume that you are not in fact broken? Can your inquiry have the curiosity maybe of a child? My friend from college had a son, well, he's 12 now, and when he was about two, she brought him for a visit uh, from Illinois and we were walking in the park. I don't have many children in my life, so it was kind of a treat for me. We were walking in the park through the grass and um, there was an iridescent bug on my sleeve. And so we stopped and we sat down on the grass and we watched this little bug travel for just about 15 minutes, and his attention was perfectly wrapped onto this 
little bug as a two-year-old, and it was like being with a little Roshi or something. <laughs> we were in bug samadhi. That's the energy, that's the quality, that's the gentleness, that's the open awareness, the not knowing, the miraculousness of what we find. What is this? Even when we're hurt or angry or tired or dull, it has its own qualities. What is this? Even just looking at our mind states this way, is this thought bringing calm and ease or is this thought bringing agitation, worry, or anger? How is it even working? What is even happening here? So speaking of grass, I want to talk about Ling Zhao, one of the ancestors in our women's lineage. And I suppose from our layperson's lineage, such as it is, Ling Zhao Pang was the daughter of Layman Pang and Mrs. Pang. Mrs. Pang unfortunately doesn't have a name anybody remembers other than Mrs. Pang. But they all were deep practitioners of the Dharma. There's a brother Pang in there somewhere and we know even less about him. He's not mentioned very much. In one reference, it was said that he did all the farming. <laughs> they lived in the 8th century. They were originally from Hengyang in the southern Chinese province of Hunan. Layman Pang was a successful merchant. The family's wealth enabled them to devote their time to study the Buddhist sutras, which they all became well-versed. After Layman Pong had retired from his profession, he said to have begun to worry about the spiritual dangers of his material wealth. So he put all of his possessions, all of the family possessions onto a boat, which he then sunk into the river. And the missus and, and the daughter were apparently okay with this because then they all set out to lead an itinerant lifestyle, traveling around China, visiting various Buddhist teachers while earning a living, making and selling baskets and bamboo utensils. And I guess the brother stayed home, I don't know. It was during this period, around the year 785, Layman Pong began to study under uh, his first teacher, and this is one of the teachers that we recite in our lineage, uh, great teacher Shirto Shichan, our seventh Chinese ancestor, was Layman Pong's teacher. Layman Pong's wife and daughter would study the sutras together. It said that Layman Pong had a, he had built himself a little monastery outside their home and but the wife and daughter practiced in the 
day-to-day life activities of, of the home. And even though Layman Pong is the famous figure of Buddhism, in all the stories that include his daughter, it's Ling Zhao who has the deepest understanding. So this story goes like this. The layman was sitting in his thatched cottage one day, studying the sutras. Difficult, difficult, he said. It's like trying to store sesame seeds in the leaves of a treetop. Easy, easy, Mrs. Pong said. It's like touching your feet to the ground when you get out of bed. Neither difficult nor easy, Ling Zhao said. On the hundred grass tips, the great master's meaning. Neither difficult nor easy. On the hundred grass tips, the great master's meaning. There are a lot of references to grass in the Zen teachings. Grass and weeds springing up often refer to things we do not want, often refer to our thoughts and afflictions. It's very easy to get tangled in the weeds. These days I would maybe liken it to our relationship, our cultural relationship to dandelions. At uh, the house next door to mine is a, basically a dandelion farm. <laughs> it's incredible, actually, how just solidly thick that yard is with dandelions. It's amazing. And I found out um, that the homeowner, prior to the one that has it now, they were meticulous about their yard. It was sort of the jewel of Burridge Avenue, completely clear and chemically treated to be utterly free of dandelions. And when they moved away, they all came roaring back. There's a lesson in there, I think, about suppressing things. And there's a story about a similar situation with a neighbor, the dandelion seeds come over the fence. That literally does happen. And really the answer is to learn to love dandelions. Difficult, difficult. That's like paddling furiously in a boat. That's one part of it. And sometimes that's enlivening even. Bancho and I used to do dragon boat racing. It's a sprint in a boat with 20 people. It can be fun to really exert and be really striving to get somewhere. But we can really make things difficult for ourselves. When we would take those races way too seriously, it was a lot less fun. 
But there are difficulties, no doubt, in our practice, in our lives, in our world. Oh, there are difficulties. Anything, a house, the job, the roof, relationship conflicts, polarized nations, all the difficulties. This is one part. Easy, easy. Just feel your feet. How many times do we hear that from teachers? Just feel your feet. Korean Zen master Sung San, he was a teacher of John Kabat-Zinn. So in a way, he's a he's representative of my mindfulness teaching lineage. Sung San would often say in his uh, broken English, you make problem, you have problem. <laughs> He, in, he mentioned, and maybe this was always been said about uh, referring to hair as ignorance grass, which is to explain the shaved heads of monks and ridding themselves of ignorance grass. Sometimes there is ease. Sometimes there is spaciousness, beautiful scenery along the way of this path. But that's not the whole story either. Neither difficult nor easy. Paddling hard in a boat, that's one part. Floating along and letting the boat carry you, that's another part. But neither is the whole truth. It's not really under our control, is it? how much effort is needed. But we do have to show up. Are we expecting things to be easy? Once we get it, once we have arrived, should things be easy? Weeds are the practice. This hand I've been dealt I have a PhD in the inner critic. As a emotionally sensitive being, family difficulties, how can I make a basket out of these weeds? How can I turn this into an offering? What are the most noxious weeds in your garden? The things you think you ought to cut out It's all right here on the hundred grass tips, the great master's meaning. How to stand in both truths. For me, it's surrendering to practice. Letting go. Is that easy? Or is that difficult? Surrender is used a lot in the 12-step spiritual tradition. A recognition that there's something larger and making a decision to align with that. 
surrendering to practice. From our chant, the Komyo Zazan Mai, just throw body and mind into the great treasury of luminosity and don't look back. And from the grassroof hermitage, let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocently. Dogen says it this way, thoroughly practicing, thoroughly clarifying is not forced. It is just like recognizing the shadow of deluded thought and turning the light around to shine within. The clarity of clarity beyond clarity prevails in the activity of Buddhas. This is totally surrendering to practice. To understand the meaning of totally surrendering, you should thoroughly investigate mind in the steadfastness of thorough investigation, all phenomena are the unadorned clarity of mind. This is not other than your everyday activity. Surrendering to practice. We are already whole and free. There is only one body, one bright mind. And everything is just being exactly itself. On the hundred grass tips, the great master's teachings The teachings are already alive today in you. Where else could they be? There is nothing to get. The beauty of a field of grass, each blade with a shining jewel. Just look. Thank you.